I'm author and athlete Brad Kearns. Welcome to the Be Rad Podcast, where we explore ways to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life. Visit bradkearns.com for great resources on healthy eating, exercise, and lifestyle. And here we go with the show. From that conversation, my takeaway was no um, vegetable oils, you know, limiting that in my diet or canola oil and all of that, using butter, avocado oil, coconut oil. That was my immediate takeaway. I really like to back up the conversation to say, look, if you just can eliminate processed foods, that's going to be your biggest win by far. You don't have to be lifting 50-pound weights or whatever, you know. Uh, it's just getting out there, moving. Um, I, you know, on the daily, if you can, I think, because that's what we were doing back in the day, right? Walking <laughs> wherever we were going and lifting heavy things. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning, as soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for B-Rad podcast listeners. Just visit Mito Red Light, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. Greetings, everyone, from Vacation Hotel Room. And yes, Mia Moore is going to be brought into the show. It's been a long time since we've had you on. Welcome back, Mia Moore. Um, finally, you're welcome. <laughs> yes, that's right. We've been talking about doing some follow-up podcasts for a while. We're going to do one on relationship insights. But this one, uh, the idea came from a ton of requests that we've received from people over the years where one person is super into the ancestral health scene and read our book and is attending our retreat. And then they'll come up and ask Mark or I, hey, uh, can you give me some tips about getting my girlfriend into primal eating too? And Mark's favorite answer is, uh, no. I, no, he, you can't. He can't do it. Because you sure couldn't do that with me. You couldn't get me to eat primal paleo. Um, because it's something with any type of diet, if you want to call it diet, the person needs to be ready to do it. 
And it has to come from them. So when you've got, you know, parents telling their teenage daughter that she needs to lose weight, for example, or a spouse, which is worse, telling their wife the same thing. I mean, usually saying, do you really want to eat that? You know, it comes uh, across going that way. sideways. Around, yeah. You know, uh, what do you call it? Like an indirect little, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not even facing it straight on, which would be a little tough to take, but at least the person's speaking straight on. Right. Instead, you're saying, like, <laughs> I'm so glad I stopped eating cupcakes, you know, stuff like that. Right. Oh, let's go for a walk after eating that piece of cheesecake. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> but anyway, but I've always said, you know, you have to be, the person has to be ready, willing to do so, and able, because let's not forget, there's always that fine print. You need to check with your doctor first, right? And I think people tend to forget about that aspect. Although that could lead to another show where you yourself don't always agree or don't feel that the doctors are up to date or current with, you know, how to eat healthy, what's healthy, what's not. I mean, that could be a different story, a different show altogether. We'll be hitting that in this show. Don't worry. Because you've described a really delicate um, tight rope that I personally have to walk because I'm total immersion into healthy living, diet, lifestyle, exercise, training, fitness. Um, however, you, you, you're you wasting your breath until someone is ready to receive the information. Not, not to mention change and actually do it, but just to even have a conversation. So when I try to... Um, dominate the uh, the chit chat at a at a gathering when people aren't even interested that's a waste of breath and then if you detect someone's interested or they have you know sincerely asking me a question about the latest book i'm working on i will jump into right. that mode really quickly uh but then um you have to be careful from getting this big hammer and just hammering in your point of view that's is is the only way and everyone else is wrong and i think we're subjected to that now with social media with easy dispensation of information podcasts youtube where um it's it's getting overboard and it's getting to be a little bit off-putting that uh so many people are are expert and and voicing their opinion so strongly and shoving it down your throat right well let's go back to like when i first learned about the paleo diet was that day when i met you on the southwest air airplane heading down a burbank and i were talking about what we do for a living or what have you as just pleasant chit chat that you do on the plane with the person sitting next to you and you mentioned the paleo diet or, or primal and i and i said what's that because i hadn't heard of that and you kind of started you you know talked to me about about it send me some links follow-up links and i started slowly reading into it and i took away a few things from it because i really wasn't willing to or ready to convert my whole you know eating habit but little things i think that's how the best way to approach things the little takeaways from that conversation Mm. my takeaway was no um, vegetable oils you know limiting that in my diet or canola oil and all of that using butter avocado oil coconut oil that was my immediate takeaway. I'd already been doing other things. I had a son who was working out and meal planning and, you know, eating healthy. So we had already eliminated, you know, all sodas from the household um, and eating, you know, just cleanly. You could, you know, sort of speak vegetables, chicken, you know, meat. But so that conversation was getting rid of all those, what do you call them? I don't know. Yeah, the processed foods, I guess. The, well, no, the vegetable the oils and all that Industrial stuff. seed oils, vegetable oils. That's a good takeaway because that is the number one thing, right. especially if you have a quick interaction with somebody. If they, can, if they can take away that, that's the number one change anyone can make in their diet is to eliminate those. Right, and that's the first thing I did. Then later on, slowly, was sugar. Did I eliminate it in my diet? No, because I can't. I mean, I just love sugar. What can I say, right? But I can reduce the sugar intake in my diet easily. I mean, I had reduced it before by not having sodas. I drink a lot of iced tea, unsweetened, you know, that type of thing. But if there's a cheesecake put in front of me, I'm going to probably eat it. Ice cream, why not? (laughs) But again, that goes back to eating everything in moderation, which I don't know if you and I agree with that. You used to talk about, I don't think you were a big fan of that, because that's sometimes what doctors tell you. They'll say, oh, you know, you, your cholesterol level is high, but, you know, just 
you know, limit this, that, or the other, or just eat it in moderation. Sometimes I think I would hear you say, don't eat it at all. Yeah, it's a slippery slope when we traffic in these um, notions of allowing an indulgence here, an indulgence there, or even verbalizing that phrase, everything in moderation starts to get me off now because the baseline is so disastrous and we have so much influence toward unhealthy eating, consuming processed foods driven by marketing forces, and engaging in all kinds of other unhealthy behaviors. And so if we walk around saying, hey, everything in moderation, we're talking about an average human who is the fattest, sickest in the history of humanity, history of of recorded history. And so I believe that we need an extreme approach to healthy living just to counterbalance all of the disasters that are in our path um, everywhere we go and every restaurant we sit down to, whether it's um, fast food, whether it's shopping at the grocery store, fine dining, medium chain dining, um, we're looking at an onslaught of health objection foods. And so if you you know don't educate yourself well and don't think about it constantly, you're going to drift pretty far down. And then if you start to use the everything in moderation uh, playing card, then you're going to drift below the, the midway point and we're going to be into the path of disease and, and demise. And we have the stats on type 2 diabetes growing at such an accelerated rate that um, you know, it's going to overwhelm um, Western society in, in the decades ahead. Um, Dr. Doug McGuff in his book, Primal Prescription, cites research that it'll bankrupt the United States Treasury. Caring for type 2 diabetics alone will, will uh, destroy the healthcare system as well as the entire, the entire government due to the cost of caring for people. Right. Um, and, you know, what you're saying about uh, processed food, I, to me, the biggest, I noticed, I'm speaking for myself here, because I'm not one that can speak about other people, for other people, but for myself, eliminating fast food, because I used to eat a lot of it, either as a kid or traveling for work for years, it was pretty easy when you arrive late to a city to grab a whatever Carl's Jr. chicken sandwich. Um, and then later in life, not eating as much as that, because there's no need for that. I noticed a change. I mean, uh, as far as, you know, weight and all that, just by not eating fast food, whether it's salt, I don't know what it is. It just, you know, um, or eating cleanly. Like, like I said, I have a friend who, or you had mentioned a friend who does the Barsdale diet for years and would mention it to me. And I never did it because I just really wasn't ready because it's very regimented as far as what you can eat for the first two weeks breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But one day I just thought, you know, I'm just going to do it. I was ready to do it. And I know in two weeks, I mean, they say you can lose a pound a day. I lost, I think, 10 pounds in two weeks. Plus, I was also, you know, kicking up my exercising, you know, doing it daily rather than, you know, a few times a week. Um, And so in those two weeks, I'm not eating anything from, you know, bought at some, didn't go out to a restaurant, just at home. Right, you stuck to it like like uh, glue it was incredible really because i don't think too many people can make that type of commitment to eat exactly what's stated there but the mere act of doing that was uh, tremendous because you were locked in right it was easy i didn't have Mm. to think about it i knew every morning was going to be half a grapefruit and a piece of he calls it protein bread but i just did wheat toast with low sugar or no sugar in it i looked at the ingredients every morning didn't have to think about that and usually i didn't eat breakfast remember i would i would never eat breakfast my first meal was always you know noon or or one sometimes but I, for these two weeks i did this you know i followed it to the t my lunch you have a choice of things to eat or you can have a, a cup of cottage cheese with some fruit blueberries blackberries and three or four pecans it was very limited but so i would cut it in little pieces to get a crunch on in every bite but that's what i did and my dinner was you know you have to choose one day he has chicken or fish and then as many vegetables as you want which i know that you're not into vegetables anymore (laughs) but so i would have my veggies you could be doing worse than following this regimented diet that kept you in, in complete regulation and i think that was the biggest insight for me watching was like anyone who takes a step away from unfettered access to indulgent foods is going to have a huge health awakening 
Right. And I think that's where we get these people saying how great the whole food plant-based is because they have their kale smoothies and their salads and their lentil soup, and they feel fantastic. And in comparison to stopping off at Carl's Jr. and having donuts in the morning and you know just bombing yourself with processed foods for years and decades, it's going to feel great to make any change, even one that I would categorize as high risk, like a whole food plant-based. But the Scarsdale Diet, for people who don't know, back in, I think it was the 70s, it was a best-selling book, and it was it was the thing for a while. And um, here it is dusted off with great success by a couple enthusiasts. Right. And the good thing about that, you only do it for two weeks. And mm. then you're off it for two weeks. If you need to lose more weight, you do it for another two weeks. But I did it for two weeks, felt great. A month or two later, I may do it for a week or so if I feel I need a, you know, kick in the pants or what have you, but it worked for me. And and so part of what you and I've always talked about is, you know, yeah, there's primal paleo, um, carnivore diet, there's all these different diets around. And I think there's not one diet for everyone. Everyone has to find what works for them, which I've always told people. But um, anyway, well, I mean, the more sophisticated the discussion gets, it seems like a lot of people are landing on that insight that there's a lot of personalization that is necessary. And so it's a big vote for um, having the courage to experiment for a month and see what happens. And if you're suffering from nagging autoimmune and inflammatory conditions and digestive disturbances and uh, nothing's done well with you know traditional treatment medication or just that you've been hanging with this stuff for years and decades a 30-day restriction diet the carnivore being the best and easiest one to follow that eliminates all those plant toxins there's thousands and thousands of people reporting amazing health turnarounds now should they stay on that forever or should should anyone um, you know, think that's the end all? Of course not. But if you got troubles, uh, the first thing to do is eliminate processed foods. Then you're going to feel fantastic. And then we have these additional tiers. But um, I'm getting frustrated with all the uh, kind of uh, hair splitting that's going on as we deeply immerse into this. And so I really like to back up the conversation to say, look, if you just can eliminate processed foods, that's going to be your biggest win by far. I had Dr. Robert Lustig on the show, author of Metabolical, The Hacking of the American Mind, uh, many other best-selling books regarded as one of the world's leading anti-sugar crusaders. And he said, backed by great research and his career reputation, he said, if you simply eliminate processed foods, you can't get fat. You can't become obese. You can't get metabolic syndrome because our body does a wonderful job regulating our caloric intake of nutritious, wholesome foods. And anyone can relate here because you don't go to the the omelet bar and have too many omelets and then be patting your stomach and feeling terrible. You just, it's really difficult to eat too many steaks and walk away feeling bad as opposed to Oh, I just finished another pint of ice cream after my long, busy, stressful day where I didn't really nourish myself well. Those are the foods that are easy to overeat and get stuck in that spiral of needing more and more of them because your body is not processing energy right. very efficiently. And the least, the yeah, the, the less you eat of those, the more guilty you feel when you do eat a piece of cake <laughs> or whatever I know I do. Because I'm not eating as much as that. Oh, so you're anymore. saying like... Now that you've cleaned up your diet, let's say, mm-hmm. you notice that you're making a departure rather than just like, sure, sure, I'll reach right. for anything. It's like, okay, I got you. Yeah. Well, it's my birthday month, so I can, you know, <laughs> that's the excuse when it's my birthday month. Um, and interestingly, you seem to weather uh, whatever treat, like you don't notice any adverse effects where I sometimes feel like crashed oh. and burned if I... Um, do go and hit the ice cream really hard when we're going out to one of the gourmet ice cream shops. I kind of feel like, oh boy, uh, but you seem to have no problem. No, probably because I <laughs> eat more of it than you do. <laughs> well, again, there's over, that personalization. And if we tested your genetics and the number of um, amylase genes, you have 23 and I have seven or something. Right. We're making that up. But like some people can handle um, a high carbohydrate intake more than others. Right. But something else I'm going to go back to when I was doing that Scarsdale diet is more than just the food. It was also like my day change during those two weeks. I was, I'm one that always stays up late. And what happens when you stay up late? You get the munchies. 
And now, and at that point, you're not going to cook something healthy. Mm. You're going to reach into the cupboard and see what's there, right? I know some people say they eat cereal, right? Because it's easy. Someone may take a scoop of the ice cream that's in the fridge. You never know. Or beef jerky, which is what I've done sometimes because it's there. Um, just your munching or popcorn, our mm. favorite, with lemon olive oil instead of... Um, butter but still so i would stay up i stay up late and i'm munching that also adds calories to you and you're not burning those calories um so with this diet that i was doing i'm eating that breakfast you know after my workout in the morning that you know little breakfast then i have my lunch and then dinner was because you're not eating a lot so you're hungry earlier so i was eating dinner at five again normally we eat dinner at with six or seven, which is why I stay up late. So I was finding myself going to bed earlier during those two weeks and actually getting more sleep as well. So, and working out every day. So it's that whole cycle, my whole um, day changed. And I think that made a difference. And I think that makes a difference when we kind of go the other direction because we're staying up late, we're eating junk food late, we're not working out as much or what, whatever it is. Um, yeah, there's tons of research suggesting that eating after dark is adverse to your digestive circadian rhythm, which is so tied into your circadian rhythm overall. Um, I'm not sure I'm highly sensitive to that one. Like, I don't, I don't have any problem eating a meal after dark or even uh, closer to but bed than you. is recommended. Right. That's you. Right. With me, I found that it does make a well, difference. Well, I mean, if everyone's different. Is yeah. If you're getting up past your. Um, your bedtime, um, you're going to kick into sort of an alternative energy source, which is cortisol, the, the stress hormone that's supposed to be dropping, dropping, dropping as you make the environment dark and you wind things down, close down your screens, all those things. But if you spike cortisol by staying up late, by getting the stimulation from a screen and from artificial light, that's going to prompt sugar cravings and quick energy because we're not, you know, tapping into our natural energy sources, which are governed by exposure to uh, sunlight and those wonderful hormone balances that occur first thing in the morning, we're supposed to wind everything down. So it's sort of like an override. So you're jumping into, um, you're pulling over into the gas station um, to get another fuel source for the last hour. And yeah, that's a good point. You make that it's available and easy. And um, also- but that's because it's in your pantry, I guess. If I, yeah. it wasn't purchased in my household, I wouldn't have it. Yeah, I'm not sure about the research on this, <clears throat> but um, maybe it's that we really want sugar at those times and the quick, easy to digest stuff rather than, um, you know, is the is making some scrambled eggs as appealing at 1030 at night as popcorn? Probably not. It is for my son. My oldest, I'll find him at 1030 at night making scrambled eggs after his hour. He's got many more hours of gaming. So that's kind of, uh, he he needs some nutritious food. Okay, so we have sort of a nice um, overview and status report where um, the couple has obviously been discussing these things and uh, living out our healthy lifestyle dreams over the last five, six years, right? And I think maybe with the show, um, maybe I can, um, we can kind of role play here where I take you a little deeper into the wonderful immersion of ancestral health principles. And then you can see sort of how that flies with your own personal experience coming from, um, you know, your background of having, a, having an interest in healthy living, healthy eating, um, but now having to, especially as you alluded to a couple times earlier in the show, you're having to embrace this radical new information that I walked through the door with one day where you said, yeah, now I guess you're not so into vegetables, all that kind of fun stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think as we sort through, let's say, the best-selling diet books of the last five decades and what the trends and patterns have been, um, there's some pretty uh, interesting trends that we really um, should educate ourselves about and understand where things are at. And one of them is this toppling of conventional wisdom that has occurred at an accelerated rate over the last 20 years with the rise of the internet and the ancestral health movement and so forth. But now what's coming to appear is that the U.S. government dietary recommendations, uh, which, by the way, have been exported across the world to all other countries, you know, we, we came up with this uh, flawed science and questionable research and um, come out with the food pyramid back in the 90s. Um, and numerous iterations of it. And we're now realizing that the standard Western diet has been 
a widespread dismal failure resulting in the fattest, sickest population in the history of humanity. And some of the highlights there have been the introduction of processed foods and the heavy promotion of these processed foods as actually healthy and superior to some of the centerpiece foods of human evolution. And amazingly, a lot of this information holds strong today, even as the research and the groundswell of information and um, success stories and failure stories have come about. But you still will go to the doctor and they'll say, hey, you should cut back on your eggs because your LDL cholesterol, quote unquote, bad cholesterol is looking a little high. And some of these, inf- some of these uh, notions are about 40 or 50 years flawed and dated from what the news was back right. in the 60s and 70s. I mean, like, who made cereal the thing to eat in the mornings? I mean, to me, that, that, that's like the grossest thing, cereal. Oh, boy. You, you just, look at uh, the ingredients. You just set me up for a good one there because Kellogg was this uh, evangelical um, health freak, and he invented cereal um, as a way of quelling um, the desire to masturbate in young youth that he wanted to indoctrinate into his religious values. And that is no joke. That's why cereal was invented, because he knew that stuffing um, the, the, the human with um, this processed food would um, diminish libido. So that's kind of a funny start to the, the cereal lifestyle. Uh, but what we have today are these uh, multinational giant companies spending billions of advertising dollars, starting when we were little kids watching cartoons in the morning. And right. Dr. Lustig talked about this a little, where the tobacco companies started to see the writing on the wall in the 60s when they were getting shut down because people were dying. And so they started gobbling up food companies and using the same uh, advertising strategies to, to create lifelong consumers of the processed food, the high-profit, nutrient-deficient processed food. And now we have companies like RJR Nabisco. RJR is RJ Reynolds, one of the great tobacco companies, the, the giants, where they you know merged and right. bought up all the, all the brands. Philip Morris Kraft. I remember I audited them back in the day. They're Philip Morris, right? Yeah. So we got wise to cigarettes. It's been great to see in our lifetimes the decline in smoking. I remember being a little kid, and I, for some reason, just hated smoking and hated cigarette smoke. And um, now it's great to live in a world where um, it's you know largely diminished and is you know now getting exported to the third world countries that um, you know aren't as um, sophisticated as to the health risks. But here we are still succumbing to a massive onslaught of advertising and flawed science and flawed government information. And then even the pillars of education, for example, like today when you go and get a degree in dietary science, nutrition, your certification are largely aligned with the government policies, the USRDA dietary recommendations. And Right, but let's go back there because I know you have your food pyramid and there's the U.S. food pyramid. I don't think the problems with the food pyramid really. I think it's the food that people are eating that are not really within the food pyramid. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the biggest problem is you're not even on the pyramid, but right. the pyramid itself is a disaster as well because it's recommending that you have grains as the centerpiece of your diet, and these are high calorie, nutrient deficient processed foods, whether they're whole grains or refined grains, they really have no place in the diet. And that's where the big fork in the road occurs with ancestral health movement. And Marxist and Primal Blueprint, the early leaders, Rob Wolf. And if we go back with proper credit, there was a, a, a researcher named Boyd Eaton in 1988 put out a paper um, showing the dietary practices of hunter-gatherer ancestors. And uh, Weston A. Price did it back 100 years ago. He traveled around the world studying indigenous populations and saw that they consumed things like organ meats. And uh, they didn't have, of course, any processed foods 100 years ago. And they were super healthy compared to um, civilized humans that were eating flour and sugar and making bread and uh, you know, living in you know, modern times. So this ancestral health movement then you know, really took off in the early 2000s. And the big takeaway to make a short story was that we eliminated the foods that occurred after civilization. So we're talking about a paleolithic eating experience and the familiar list of foods that humans evolved for two and a half million years were meat, fish, fowl, eggs, vegetables, fruits, nuts, and seeds. And by the way, they also ate a lot of insects. And largely uh, noticeably missing from that list were the grains 
that were the centerpiece of the advent of civilization. That's why we were able to become civilized, is we started to cultivate corn, wheat, and rice across the globe. Then we could grow crops, live in one space, uh, advance society, and also get much less healthy because these, these calories were going in that were not hunter-gatherer fare, which are vastly more nutrient-dense. And so um, a grain-based diet has been really the biggest disaster, uh, and also including the refined industrial seed oils as we went away from natural fats that we used to cook with and eat. And remind me again the the bad thing about grains. Well, they're high calorie, high carbohydrate, very little nutrition in comparison to a steak, an egg, a sardine, a salmon. Um, you know the the true nutrient dense foods of the earth, fruits, and so basically we're filling up our um, our mouths with a lot of calories that don't do much for us besides overwhelm the delicate system of um, insulin production because we're not used to as humans we're not used to ingesting 100 200 grams 300 500 grams of carbohydrates in a day okay but what if there are all these other countries that rice is a staple in their you know their diet they're not obese you don't have a, a lot of obesity there is it they're more active probably out walking and you know working the fields whatever it is, is that the difference you know what yeah very good question it's really um what we get into these days are the back and forth about people citing an attribute of the mediterranean diet or the traditional japanese diet and look how long they live and look how much healthier they are. And so we can pick and choose all kinds of positive attributes and negative attributes of any civilized, you know, no one's perfect. Even the, the longest lived humans in the secret pocket of uh, the Blue Zones, which is a popular book and lifestyle movement where they went and found areas where there was a lot of people living to 100. And it's been, you know, widely um, criticized and discredited by people that uh, that object to it. And then it's been widely touted as like the greatest thing. And um, this, you know, this whole industry has been built around the Blue Zones. And I like to um, look for common ground so we don't just argue all day long and realize that people who live to be 100, they're doing a lot of things right. One of them is picking the right parents because it's mm -hmm. now known that there's a lot of people that can live to 100. I'm sidetracking for a moment, but it's interesting to note there's like a half a million people alive today around the world that are over 100. Wow. However, how many people live to be 110? Very, very few. There's uh, it's like there's 17 or something right now. So there's wow. a half a million live to 100, 110 ain't happening. And with the research on the super centenarians, it's called 110 plus, um, the genetic attributes are so profound that it's almost like you're not going to get there unless you have the genes and all these awesome lifestyle habits. Of course, there's probably a lot of people that have super centenarian genes that live to be 73 because they smoked and well, did whatever. There's the French lady, didn't she smoke? Jean Calmont. Yeah, yes. she smoked. She, she quit smoking when she was like 115 or something like right. that. Like they, she finally quit. Anyway, back to the... Well, no, I'm going to talk about my grandma. My great-grandmother lived to be over 100, and she drank, she had a shot of some hard alcohol every night, and that's what she attributed her so, long life to. So a, a great-grandmother living to be over 100 is a stunning performance, because mm -hmm. I said today there's a half a million centenary in 2022, but if this great-grandma was living in the coming into the 20th century and that's it like mm -hmm. when did she die around i'd have to ask my dad so it's in the 18s and 19s then if she's your great grandma that's mm -hmm. incredible because back then yeah maybe she was one of the few around sure um so the um what i was saying before i got excited about the, the hundred year old people was oh so we're looking at all the attributes of different diets and different cultures and trying to get these common ground i think clearly the lack of processed foods gives you a fighting chance to have a long, healthy, happy, productive life. And so anyone who's consuming these modern foods that have accelerated in their offerings in the last 30, 40, 50 years, um, that's a disaster. You're just slashing your lifespan every single day that you pull into Carl's Jr. or Ben & Jerry's pints or uh, the, the potato chips and the stuff that's going in. I want to tell you about wildhealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician 
and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash Brad or use the code BRAD20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash Brad. So, you know, we're past the point of like optimal uh, longevity potential because we have way more processed foods than our our parents even and our grandparents um, so that's the, that's the first note and the second one is because you asked about um, the, the, the presence of grains and how they're a big staple in civilized society across the world and they have been for 10,000 years so again this is how civilization started was the ability to grow wheat rice and corn and so we don't want to go back to hunter-gatherer times where we're all going around looking for food for five or six hours every day. Um, that's what the Hadza in Tanzania are doing right now and the other primitive populations around the globe. They're super healthy. They have amazing statistics, but they're also having to get up and look for food all day. So assuming we want to exist wonderfully in modern life and, and enjoy our lives the way we are, um, looking to an ancestral diet has become very popular for a lot of reasons. One of them is that the food is more nutritious and it's more aligned with our human genetic expectations for health. So like in the Primal Blueprint, where we had to initially present this very controversial and difficult to sell story, we're talking about how we evolved as Homo sapiens and before that Homo erectus. So we've been around for millions of years eating these kinds of foods, meat, fish, fowl, eggs, vegetables, fruits, nuts, and seeds. If you look at that list and calculate what carb level is in that list, it's by comparison to today, a very low carbohydrate diet. You get plenty of carbs from fruits and vegetables and so forth, but by comparison to having grains being a centerpiece of all meals all day long around the world, that's a big shift and it's getting us back closer to our human genetic expectations for health, which are not to slam orange juice, toast, oatmeal with brown sugar on top and all those things that we've come to see as routine. Okay. So as you can, as you can tell, listeners, I'm, I'm trying to sell the, the story, and that's what the, the fun of the show that I, I thought would be, um, you know, how does that fly to you? And that, that ancestral example of eating, I think, is the, it's the centerpiece of the movement, so it's a pretty important thing to grasp, especially when, um, you know, I wasn't really aware of, uh, you know, evolutionary anthropology to the extent where, you know, we had this big fork in the road. Um, what's his name? Jared Diamond, uh, Nobel Prize winning UCLA professor, uh, best-selling author. He said it was the greatest shift in the history of humanity was the shift away from hunter-gatherer lifestyle to civilized lifestyle. And with that was the greatest shift in dietary practices in the history of humanity, too. And we're having a difficult time dealing with it based on the you know, global uh, statistics of um, you know, obesity and th those population right. statistics. And then a shift in activity level too, I would think, from yeah. hunter-gatherers to civilization. So if you look at this ancestral health movement, and we'll talk on the other aspects like diet, sleep, circadian rhythm, we've talked a little bit, but um, we're talking about getting back to um, the original, you know, human healthy lifestyle. And of course, making all the adaptations into uh, modern life because we're not living in caves anymore. So instead, we hear a show from a sleep expert saying, we want to have your room temperature down between 60 and 68 Fahrenheit because we're meant to sleep in a cool environment. That's how the body uh, gets to sleep and stays asleep. So all these cool little tips and tricks to become more ancestral. Hey, jump in the cold water. I have a chest freezer 
in our in our yard or I jump in the lake. I'm the only person in the lake in the winter. Um, that's also an ode to how our ancestors dealt with a lot of temperature stress and became strong and resilient accordingly by dealing with long, dark, cold winters and learning how to burn body fat more efficiently. So that's what we're doing with these adaptations and little tricks. A lot of people call them biohacking and so forth. Like the mattresses. Right, the, the temperature-controlled eight-sleep mattress, which we're excitedly getting started on. Uh, but on the important point of diet, it's pretty difficult to dispute that if you go looking for the natural foods of the earth um, in the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom, you are going to be on a healthy path because we've made it this far, two and a half million years, consuming a lot of animals and a lot of different plants as well. Um, people who are objecting to our egg consumption or consuming red meat because it's so unhealthy and it's going to clog your arteries and give you a heart attack are, uh, I would say, gracefully, nicely, um, you're kind of rejecting the evolutionary anthropology model, which is the longest and most severely scrutinized scientific study in history. So it's known, it's not disputed, it's known that we did eat a lot of meat and eggs and fish. And in fact, the access to this nutrient-rich food that's found in animal foods was what allowed us to grow a bigger and more complex brain and branch off on the family tree from our ape cousins. Today, the gorilla spends 11 hours a day consuming around 40 pounds of plant matter, chewing it and digesting the fiber and getting the what minimal nutrition it needs to fuel a brain that's a third of the human size. And so that's an illustrative example of how important and valuable it is for us to find the most nutritious foods to fuel the brain as well as the body. You sold me right there with that statement. With the gorilla? <laughs> yeah, why do we want to be like a gorilla? Come on. Um, so here's where the problem occurs, I think, or the sticking point is the um, industrialization of our food supply today. And you can go watch a documentary of how nasty the animals mm. are treated and all the crap that they feed the cows in today's feedlots and make a decision oh my gosh, I'm never eating that garbage again. I'm just going to stick to kale smoothies, salads, and stir fry and be more healthy and be more sustainable and more clean. And the experts in the, the ancestral health realm will help you counter all those objections. Paul Saladino has great shows talking about regenerative agriculture where the cows, when they're allowed to live in their natural habitat and their natural manner, they sequester carbon into the, into the earth. So they're doing like a net positive for the greenhouse gas rather than this horrible, um, you know, that you hear about them farting and causing a huge problem for uh, climate change and all that. And so I think we can reconcile the objections to eating animal foods by finding the very best sources of animal foods available today, the most sustainable, you would call right. it. Pasture-raised eggs. Yeah, there you go. So pasture-raised, that term implies that the chicken was out running around eating grass, eating worms, eating insects, and developing this egg that is way more nutritious than the chicken that's fed in the chicken coop who lives in a tiny little cage. They keep the lights on 24-7 so the chickens don't go to sleep because they can't sleep if it's light. And then they feed them hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, so they grow really big. The guys I just had on the podcast, Meat Mafia, they have a graphic on their Instagram where the, the size of the chicken in 1940s was like two pounds, and now it's 10 pounds wow. because they stuff these up and they breed them genetically. And so it, it really is highly and they objectionable. they sell them to Costco for rotisserie Yeah, and people chicken. like those bigger ones because they look like they're getting more meat. And then you go to the farmer's market and you find a truly pasture-raised chicken from a local farmer, and it's tiny, and it's $17 instead of five ninety-five at Costco. So there's some budget concerns. There's a lot of um, concerns about, speaking of sustainability, if everyone all of a sudden went to this ultimately highly sophisticated animal-based organic diet, um, we wouldn't have, We'd run we, out. we wouldn't be able to support, right. especially the population today at 7 billion. Um, when our fathers were born, it was um, 2 billion and now it's 7 billion. So we got all kinds of issues. But when it comes to um, scrutinizing your own diet and trying to be as healthy as possible, 
um, that's where we can try to focus in and say, let's find the most nutritious foods that are the easiest to digest, that don't cause problems, and they're minimally processed, minimally labeled, frozen, packaged, boxed, wrapped, all that crap. Well, I don't know if you're going to talk about this on this show, but my biggest, well, my, I was really fascinated when you started talking about or interviewing folks also about who were carnivore. And the reason they went carnivore was to either there was a anti-inflammatory reason or the people that had certain autoimmune diseases. I found that pretty fascinating. Uh, me too, because I was hit with these insights in 2019. So I feel like I was really on this um, ancestral health kick for many years since hooking up with Sisson in 2008. And prior to that, I was saying, kind of like you described at the outset of the show, like, I was very health conscious since I was 18 years old. As far as diet, I read all the books. I tried to get the best whole wheat bread and whole wheat pasta and stay away from the Wonder Bread and find um, the peanut butter that didn't have the processed oils in there. Uh, But I was eating what would probably be called a um, a high-carbohydrate grain-based diet. Had my giant bowl of cereal in the morning, but guess what cereal was in there? It was the best natural granolas with no additives and, uh, you know, the whole cooked oatmeal rather than the instant, bunch of fresh fruit on top and all that sort of thing. And so switching over to uh, eliminating all grains and kind of going into, quote unquote, the low carb category just by default, that was, uh, you know, a huge, a huge transformation. And then um, when Dr. Paul Saladino came out and Dr. Sean Baker came out promoting this um, this meat-based diet or this carnivore diet, um, that was an eye-opener to hear about the potential concerns with the natural plant toxins that are contained in all plants, especially as, and, and most concentrated in the categories that we celebrate as the most nutritious. So the leafy greens, the cruciferous vegetables, this is where you can find higher levels of the natural poisons that your body can potentially at, react adversely to in the form of autoimmune and assorted inflammatory conditions, as well as digestive complaints like gas bloating, uh, transient digestive pain, problems with elimination, which are so common that I believe most people just think that they're normal and you're going to go through the month, let's say, or the year with some rough days where you're bloated, you're well, that not was you good. when I met you. Yeah. And you yeah. were eating all these stir fries with cabbage and kale or Giant all that salad, stuff. giant stir fries. Um, then I got going on my green smoothie from the viral YouTube video of Dr. Rhonda Patrick showing how she's stuffing in all this raw celery, spinach, kale, beets, and carrots. And so in raw form, um, the plant toxins are especially concerning because they haven't been treated, processed, and neutralized. And throughout history, what humans have done with plant material is prepare them so that they can be ingested without killing us. So if, if you uh, think about olives or cashews or things like that, if you eat that raw, you'll die. It's very poisonous, right? So we have to soak, sprout, ferment, or cook many plant foods in order to render them not only not only more pleasant but you know non-poisonous and so we're on this spectrum now where if you're having a raw kale smoothie you are indeed getting high levels of certain antioxidant compounds and the things that are touted but you're also getting high levels of these poisons which can cause autoimmune inflammatory and digestive problems um how do you know well you can assess for symptoms or you can do that elimination where if you cut out um and the idea would be to cut out all plant foods for 30 days and see see how you you perform um that'll be good indicators and then when you're scrutinizing your plant intake again for the first time because this is sort of new information to me you can start to tier your your risk factors i guess cooking things and cooking things well will neutralize more plant toxins of course it lowers the nutritional value when you cook anything that's why these raw food diets have been popular over time where people contend that they're getting the most nutritious sources because they didn't cook their kale um, but that's you know again a very high risk situation and so my my smoothie to finish the point here um, I would drink it and then my stomach would pop out for four hours every single day and it would be kind of sore to touch and be empty sticking out <clears throat> then it would finally correct and I'd be okay. And then I finally had that awakening, like this can't be healthy, even though it's supposed to be super healthy. And there's all kinds of scientific papers showing how healthy uh, the raw kale is and all that. Um, and that was a nice, you know, kind of transition to be a little more sensible uh, with these, 
you know, extreme efforts to be healthy. Right. But it doesn't affect everyone the same way. Right. And so if you have the genetic makeup or whatever your good fortune is, you have an in, intact gut lining is another big one. So if you have some leaky gut uh, symptoms that have developed over a lifetime, you're going to find you're allergic to 27 different foods from your food test. And you got to watch out for this and you got to watch out for that. And that could be um, attributed upstream to having um, a, you know, a, a gut that's inflamed and dysfunctional and allowing in unwanted agents into the bloodstream to prompt allergic reactions. So once you get super healthy and heal your gut, heal your inflammation, including all your other lifestyle habits that promote inflammatory balance, then you might be more resilient with your diet. Like your example, I think you can go have your cheesecake and ice cream because you have good gut function and a basic level of general health. Same with skipping a night of sleep. I don't know how you can do that, but you seem to do it just fine. Well, I've never skipped a night <clears throat> of sleep. I may just get four hours the day before an early morning flight because I'm packing. <laughs> That's yeah, about that it. would put me out for the entire vacation, probably. So <laughs> again, having that baseline health foundation will help you um, navigate whatever's coming down your 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 pipe with your diet and um, with this with this rise of the animal based movement, um, a lot of people are seeing good benefits from you know toning down that uh, intake of the the plant superstar foods or preparing them uh, properly or picking and choosing the stuff that's more agreeable to them. Now, the other part, which is interesting to me, I wouldn't say I was a huge sufferer. I did notice from those smoothies because that was an extreme dose of natural toxins. And then, you know, my, my um, bloating and digestive problems coming when I was making those massive red cabbage stir fries. It wasn't great, but it, I wasn't in the hospital is what I'm saying. No, you weren't in the hospital, but you were standing upside down on your head right. for yeah. Yeah. in the evenings just to kind of help your... Yeah, it was no, yeah. It was no joke. Um, the other part that was really, um, you know, an eye opener to me was that, in fact, if you were to look at the nutrient quality of these wonderful plant foods that we've been convinced our whole life are, should be the centerpiece of the diet, you know, what's healthier than a, a kale smoothie in the morning, a salad for lunch, Spinach, and stir fry for dinner? iron, how's that? Right, right. All those great attributes that we've been convinced forever. Um, in fact, the true nutrient superstars of the planet are from the animal kingdom, not the plant kingdom. And again, that's pretty disputable now. I could get a guest on here that would say, well, no, there's nothing like, um, you know, a, a kale for the, um, the, the, the sulforaphane and broccoli is, is off the charts and um, so forth and, and all that. But um, objectively speaking, if you were to get a macro, micronutrient analysis of various foods and you put a four ounce slice of liver up there with a stalk of broccoli or a, a kale smoothie or a giant salad with all kinds of whatever colorful plants and nutrients on there, there's no comparison. The liver blows away any plant food, as well as the other pasture-raised eggs, the grass-fed beef, the oily cold-water fish. That's where humans have obtained the majority of their nutrition for two and a half million years. It's not from the kale smoothies. Um, and so the people that have difficult time embracing that, um, a lot of this has been a wonderful uh, marketing push especially in recent years for the, the plant-based community being more sustainable, more nutritious, and staying away from all those killers like red meat and eggs that are clogging your arteries. Um, that's been unfortunate because it's just not grounded in good science, and it's a lot of unwinding and deprogramming, even today in traditional educational paths or in the physician world where I take a special exception because your MD has not necessarily obtained any training whatsoever in nutrition. Maybe and one class. Maybe one <laughs> class. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Joy Kong, the, the stem cell doctor, um, she said she had like one, not, not, a, not, a, not a semester class, but one day of class mm -hmm. where they talked about nutrition at UCLA Medical School. Wow. <clears throat> So that's not to criticize anything about the medical community because they're there to, um, to treat and, and uh, care for disease and illness. And we need those people when my appendix needs to come out. I'm super happy to go see the surgeon and all the other reasons that we go see the doctor. They're not there to be um, health and wellness nutrition counselors. But the problem occurs is when they ascend to that role somehow and believe themselves to be the authority on all matters of healthy living and dispense dietary advice, 
that's backed by U.S. government uh, dogma that we've had for decades, where we want you to um, cut back on your eggs because your cholesterol is too high. And we can break that down at every level where, for example, the Framingham study, the longest and largest study, um, it's called epidemiological study, uh, like your daughter's course of master study, but that means a study of um, lifestyle on health conditions. Um, it's been going for something like 80 years, and they've concluded there's no correlation between dietary cholesterol intake and blood cholesterol levels. So if you cut back on your dietary cholesterol, your body will just make more because it's an important component for all manner of hormonal functions and making sex hormones and all these important things. And so same with the red meat causes cancer headline that's been pounded into our heads for decades. It's just not associated with um, anything that's that could be called respected science. What about organ meat and cholesterol level or, or cancer causing? What's the science there? Because, you know, yeah. I mean, the problem with a lot of the scientific conclusions that the government has been touted as um, policy for the last many decades is that all this research comes in the in the crucible of unhealthy uh, modern lifestyle habits. So if you have a high processed foods diet that also happens to be high in red right. meat, um, you are going to cause all kinds of trouble for those eggs and those steaks that get washed down with uh, 7-Up and um, ice cream and so forth. So if you have this inflammatory diet that's high carbohydrate, high in the refined industrial seed oils, you're going to develop these conditions <clears throat> like metabolic syndrome right. and then have a much more likelihood of accumulating plaque on your arteries and having a heart attack. And in fact, cholesterol is part of that story. Uh, but as some uh, people like to use this analogy, you hear it a lot like um, there's firefighters at the fire, but it doesn't mean the firefighters started the fire. So there's cholesterol involved in your heart attack, um, the same stuff that came in the egg, but to make those associations that it was that high egg intake that caused too much cholesterol in your body to start collecting in your arteries is 50 years old flawed science. Okay. Going back to... So the organ meats you asked about too. Yeah, yeah organ so, meats. So is that high... Are they high cholesterol? Yeah, I sure. I grew up like, eating organ meats. You yeah. Know, and, tripe and yeah. buche and yeah. you know what So traditional uh, Latin liver. American cuisine. Grew up eating liver. And traditional cuisine for anywhere around the planet has all these amazing, fantastic attributes that have been shoved aside only in the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, there's a great book called Fast Food Nation by Eric Schlosser, written in like 1998, and he talks about how the rise of fast food culture um, destroyed the fabric of American society, which was the family home-cooked meal of eating, preparing and eating nutritious foods together. And now instead, people could do more work, make more money, uh, get food more conveniently, and show the love to their family by going through the drive-through and handing them some hot fries, rather than everyone having to slave over peeling the potatoes at home and doing all these things that represented a lot of family togetherness. No, they're showing their love for their family because they're busy taking their kids to soccer practice, you know, whatever it is, boarding events after work, because now both uh, mother and father have to work, right, to survive in this world and buy a house. And they also want to make sure their kids do all these other activities. So you're kind of stuck. I'm just saying, you yeah. know. Oh, it's you're observing the trend, the change of culture and right. the, the progress, quote unquote, progress of society where, um, yeah, the kids are better at soccer today than they were 50 years ago, I'm sure, because of all the coaching and the videoing. Um, and the standard of living is higher. Perhaps you could say we're taking um, whatever it is, living in bigger houses, taking better vacations, the, the classic uh, American dream story. But we've discarded some amazing culinary traditions that served our ancestors all the way up to your mother's time and so forth. And so this bringing back the traditional cuisine, um, that should be highly embraceable by almost anyone who has a memory or a grandmother hanging around that can, you know, reference back. Um, you know, my mom talks about how liver and onions was her favorite thing growing up as a kid, but we were never served that because we had more McDonald's available. And so kind of taking a few backward steps from this massive accelerated progress of modern times and returning to some of these ancestral traditions, like taking a walk and walking more in general rather than driving everywhere and toning down that obsessive consumption of screen entertainment in favor of, let's say, playing card games 
or doing uh, art or doing some family togetherness where you're actually communicating rather than everyone interfacing with the screen. And then when it comes to food, like appreciating that local movement, which is great that's come about now. And, um, you know, people are trying to source local. A lot of times that gets uh, unfortunately interwoven with like a plant base and staying away from the local uh, animal products. But uh, all in all, all that stuff is all that stuff is good. And, you know, we're compelled to, I think, wake up to these these big picture ideas that you got to stay away from that processed food because it's going to kill you. And we've all been touched. Every single family has been touched and every individual has been touched either personally or in, you know, with loved ones with cancer, heart disease and the major killers of modern times, which are, you know, largely preventable and unnecessary. That's who said it? Maybe it was McGuff, like 90, is it 97 or 99 percent of all cancers are lifestyle related and 1 percent are genetic. You know, some some people, some young young people are born with a cancer and they're in children's hospital from ages of zero or at age four or whatever. And then the the other 99 are the stuff we, we, we put in our, our face the rest of our decades. Interesting. Okay, maybe we should try to summarize the bouncing around of the important points. So I think we talked about the first step, the first gateway for anybody, whatever level of enthusiasm they have, is to eliminate the processed foods. Right. And then, arguably, um, but a very strong argument to uh, hearken that ancestral tradition and understand the example of evolutionary anthropology where we ate a certain way for two and a half million years and now we're trying to be convinced otherwise by looking at a food pyramid that was put out by what has now been exposed as disastrously flawed and uh, manipulated science and propaganda from food lobbyists and so forth, putting that bottom base of the pyramid uh, and showing things like, um, you know, nonfat milk and uh, all, all kinds of stuff like that. So if we can kind of back up a bit and look to our ancestral example and stick to those foods that come from the earth that are minimally processed and sustainably sourced now, we talked about that too. So if you are going to go um, embrace red meat and eggs and fish, especially fish with all the concerns about pollution and all that, you're, you're making good choices with the most nutritious foods on the planet. You can go download the Carnivore Scores food rankings chart that is present on our refrigerator uh, at bradkearns.com, and that will show you how to prioritize the most nutritious foods. Um, so we talked about that and getting getting more movement in. As far as, we didn't talk about fitness and exercise and all that stuff, but if we want to get quick there, a lot of experts are now contending that just moving more is more important and more beneficial to health than hitting this hardcore devoted exercise regimen where you're getting yourself to the gym at 6 a.m. several days a week and you're working out for an hour and then the rest of your life is on the subway, in the office, or on the couch. Just moving around more is a better win than getting your points at the gym. I mean, you can go to the gym. Like, I like to go and take classes. And these classes kind of do an all over. You do a little bit of cardio work, not heavy, some weight work. It's all about just doing, you know, some, what what do you you guys call it? Weight resistance. Sure, yeah. Movements and stuff. But you don't have to be lifting 50-pound weights or whatever, you know. Uh, It's just getting out there, moving. I, you know, on the daily, if you can, I think, because that's what we were doing back in the day, right? Walking <laughs> wherever we were going and lifting heavy things. What is it that you guys say all the time? Well, I, I'm, you made a good point there because um, there is a danger of getting too extreme with our fitness pursuits today. That's a small amount of the population, but it's definitely out there where people are pushing too hard, thinking that the path to fitness is struggling and right. suffering. So if you can work within yourself and right. just go and lift some things and they're not that heavy right. or whatever you oh, prefer to do. Go for a do. long walk, but at a brisk, brisk um, pace. Right. I find myself after an hour of walking briskly, hey, I feel like I had a good workout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all um, you need to do. It's. I think there's a lot of benefits to doing things that are super brief and also explosive and, and high intensity. So we need to challenge ourselves uh, in order to age gracefully. Otherwise, we're just going to get a, a little slower and a little less balance and a little less functional with right. the passing of time. And so that's the whole primal blueprint fitness template was to move around a lot, um, put your body under resistance load, lift some heavy things or light things in your example. Right, light things. Um, a lot of light, you know, light yeah. things, but repetitive. Yeah. And then 
finally do something uh, explosive. And so that could mean uh, a set of kettlebell swings where you can only do it for 10 or 15 seconds because it's too difficult and you got to stop or uh, uh, sprinting on the bike. bike. Yeah. yeah. We have the Carol bike, which is a wonderful technology because Love the it. whole workout's only eight minutes and it includes two 20 second sprints. And if you go all out, even for a short time like that, you get tremendous fitness benefits uh, in a different way than taking that hour walk. Right. They're both super important. Well, that's one workout. I like the 15 minute workout. Yeah, it's just has like short and 20 challenging. Sprints. Yeah, that's the main point. Um, and then finally, we talked about a little bit of circadian rhythm in terms of eating as well as uh, just living in that way where we want to tone things down after dark because that's when our genes expect us to wind down and start making the sleep sleepiness hormones and start you know just turning the brain down and getting a good night's sleep. And so the way to do that is to minimize your technology, your stimulation, and your light sources in the home in the hours before bed. And that one's pretty difficult with all the stuff we're dealing with in modern times. You're staying up late packing. You need the light bright so you can see the right clothes to bring. <laughs> um, and I think, interestingly, for both of us, like we have no problem falling asleep, even if we've been watching a show right before it goes, you know, right before bedtime. I'm tired. I need to go to bed. It can be right after a show. I don't need this perfect wind down where I'm meditating for the final 30 minutes. So that's good. But a lot of people struggle with sleep. And then we're talking about a whole different story. Right. Now, I know you, when it comes, when it's 10 o'clock, all of a sudden, I know your whole body, I could see your whole body just just down. I mean, you're done. I feel drugged when it's 10 o'clock. I really do. I'm like, I can't even talk. My speech pattern goes off. Yeah. Which is a nice gift. And it starts first thing in the morning. Setting your circadian rhythm starts first thing in the morning by exposing yourself to direct light and getting those hormones switched on, which will then, uh, however many hours later, start to recalibrate because you have aligned yourself with the rising and setting of the sun. Wow, did we cover a ton on this show? If it yeah, was a, if it was a flight, it would have already landed. They'd be kicking wasn't us off. Wasn't very southwest. organized, but that's all right. That's why we have Mia Moore on the show. Go go with the flow. Thanks okay. for listening, everybody. Send us some comments, maybe some follow-up questions. All right. Well, thanks for having me on your show. Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this amazing home-based fitness education for you. And you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows.
Subscribe to our email list at bradkearns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.